We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, you're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show aired across Australia through the Community Radio Network and the podcast available on demand wherever you like to get your podcast information from. We are proudly bringing you science, technology, engineering and maths content from Tasmania. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Sarah Lydon, and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa and Pakana people, as we record on Luchuita. I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where you are listening, and on behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So, we've got Sarah joining us today, which can only mean one thing. It's an engineering episode. Sarah, can you please tell me a little bit more about our guest today? Today's guest is Evgeny Zemchukov from the School of Engineering at Utah. So Evgeny has just completed his PhD on cost-effective operation and control of isolated power systems. So previously, listeners may remember that we did an episode quite a while ago on isolated power systems. And in this episode, we've invited Evgeny along so we can continue the conversation on opportunities that isolated power systems, particularly those with renewables, can play empowering remote communities and lessons we might be able to learn from these systems around increasing renewable generation. So Evgeny, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, To get started in this first segment, we were hoping you could tell us a bit about the type of engineering work that you do and what initially attracted you to doing engineering. All right, so I'm an electrical engineer. I I guess my whole family was in engineering and my father was in uh, hydraulics and my mother was actually an electrical engineer as well. So I think I just didn't have a choice. (laughs) I just follow the steps of my parents. Did they give you a lot of encouragement as you were growing up towards maths and science-y type subjects? Nah, I think it's just the example that was set that brought me into that rather than the encouragement. I, I did like math at school. I did like physics in school as well. And doing all the experiments, you know, how, is, how fun it can be. <laughs> so yeah, that that's was uh, the main drive for me. And later in my, like at, at my high school, I started um, like doing some programming and doing some computer science sort of thing. And Engineering is the field where you can apply all this knowledge, and it's uh, it was a logical way for me to go. My my cousin actually also went to do electrical engineering, and I think we discussed all of these things uh, quite a lot when we hanged together. And yeah, my cousin also played tennis, and I play tennis, so I kind of like probably I don't really do well in choosing my path. I just follow what <laughs> others do, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> That's that's that, that that's how it happened. But um, uh, I I do enjoy doing it right now, and I'm really happy that I chose this path for myself. So you're originally from Russia. Yep. Um, what brought you to Australia to do your PhD? Oh, that's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure if we have time for that. But yeah, <laughs> I'll try to to um, to say in short how it all happened. Um, so yeah, I did my uh, bachelor in Russia. I'm I'm from Siberia. That's a, a cold place that's in the middle of Russia. And I did my bachelor in electrical power plant design. 
and how to integrate this, those power plants in isol uh, in power systems. I'm going to jump ahead to isolated power systems. Um, and at some point, um, closer to the end of my degree, I had some collaboration with the university in Germany, in Magdeburg. So I went to Germany to do my master's. Spent there two years, worked on many uh, exciting projects that they have there in Germany. At some point, I went, went to the conference, which was in Slovakia. And in there, I met my uh, supervisor of my PhD, yeah, Michael Nignevitsky. He kind of mentioned that he has a project that will start soon. And back at those times, I was already at the end of my master's. I told yeah, I'm keen to, to do PhD in electrical engineering because... I did a lot of research during my master and it kind of makes sense for me to continue in that, especially here in Australia, because you have so many opportunities for renewable energy, for transitioning to this new sustainable future. So Michael kind of talked me into that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I agreed. Um, I applied for the position. I received an offer and yeah, um, took tickets to the plane and arrived here in Australia. And then there was another flight when I was in Australia, and I was like, why do I keep flying somewhere? <laughs> so I flew to here to Tasmania. Then I realized that I, it's different things. Tasmania and Australia, there is an island <laughs> near the island. <laughs> I can really relate to that because I also emigrated from Europe to come do my studies here, my PhD. And then when I arrived, I was like, wow, it's a really, really long way. Um, but also the extra flight and you realise it's actually quite different to maybe what you thought you were getting into for uh, going to Australia. When when you look back, it sounds like you're making something really appealing to do a career in research because you get to go to all these different places and meet all these different people. What drew you to isolated power systems in particular or that like excitement about renewable energy in Tasmania or Australia? So isolated power systems are good examples of how you can integrate technology and how this technology will behave in a sort of controlled way. Isolated power systems in general are not constricted by all the codes and limitations that uh, you will see in big uh, bulk electric power systems. Basically, it means that whatever idea you have, you can, int you can implement it and you're not going to... Uh, receive a lot of criticism for that you can go any directions you want and it's still going to be at least piloted it will be tried on and then if it is a good successful idea then it can be scaled up to the actual uh, power system and that's probably the main drive why it's exciting to work on the slate power systems we discussed a lot of these points with my supervisor and it kind of seems like you are an artist when you're working on a slated power system rather than an engineer. In a bulk power, a big, big uh, like Australian uh, national electricity market, you're always constrained by all the codes, regulations, rules, uh, so on and so on and so on. A slated power system, you come there, there is a blank list and you, okay, what can we do in here? What, let's have some fun. <laughs> let's, let's, let's build a battery or let's uh, introduce uh, like 150, 200, 300 uh, percent, 300 uh, percent of renewable energy penetration, and you can't do it because it's not going to be 
that expensive to do it given that the load of the isolated power system is quite small and it's usually just a, like a community a small community which on average have about one two megawatts of uh, average load consumption and yeah in in this scenario you can think of any hardware that you want to install in there and then go from there you can think of any control strategies some of them might not be conventional one ones but you're allowed to do it because you can say that okay it's a solid power system we, we haven't seen it before it it's a new field of study so you can say that okay i'll introduce forecasting i'll introduce uh, some artificial intelligence and all of that will be acceptable because it's more like a, an artistic job than engineering job in solid power systems yeah, I love that. It sounds really creative and it's great that I think sometimes engineering can be quite the perception that I would have is that it can be a little bit closed in or governed by lots of regulations and things. So it's nice to have a space where you can let the creative engineering juices flow, I suppose, for lack of a better word. Okay, listeners, that's our intro with Eugenie Semshikov. Stick with us and we'll be talking more about what his PhD project was on. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about isolated power systems. My name is Sarah Leiden, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Evgeny Semchikov. So in this next segment, we're going to go into depth on Evgeny's PhD project. So Evgeny, you told us a little bit in the first segment about isolated power systems and the exciting opportunities in that space. Could you tell us how your PhD project fits into that broader picture? The main problem of isolated power system that we can see historically is that they are based on diesel engines, uh, on diesel fuel, and most of the electricity produced in there would be produced by these uh, old-fashioned fossil fuel-based technologies. And whenever we want to uh, eliminate that, we would introduce some renewable energy. For example, in those regions, the most abundant renewable energy would be solar and wind. And by introducing that, we can theoretically offset the costs of electricity production. And you'd think that if we introduce more and more of this renewable energy, we can at some point completely eliminate the need of diesel fuel and generate all of our energy just purely by these clean and sustainable uh, energy sources. But in reality, it's not really true because these technologies like wind and solar, they don't really give you reliability. So it means that uh, sun doesn't shine all the time, wind doesn't blow all the time. And so in these points when you don't have this energy available in the grid, you need to do something uh, about it. You need to introduce some kind of backup uh, options to still supply electricity to your consumers. That's why you can't completely eliminate uh, diesel engines from there. What our research uh, focuses on is how to minimize the dependence on this diesel and how to minimize uh, the energy which is produced by diesel annually. So the way to do it, there are different technologies such as energy storage or, I can know, trendy word right now, hydrogen. All of these uh, things can be utilized in isolated power system in order for us to extend the periods of time when we are not using diesel engines. One of the things that we proposed is to utilize either the forecasting techniques or to change the way how we run our diesel engines over there. 
Uh, conventionally, those diesel engines run with the so-called low load limit. It means that they are incapable to operate below this 30 or 40 percent of the load. And in order for us to eliminate these uh, limitations, we proposed a technology which is called a low load diesel. Uh, this is the uh, engine that can actually operate below this uh, point. And we showed that, that that by using this technology, we can save lots of money and we can achieve higher renewable energy penetrations on our islands. So at the start of the episode, you were telling us a bit about how easier to implement new technologies in isolated power systems than in the larger electricity grid because there's not as much regulation and codes that need to be met. But are there any barriers that do exist in terms of implementing isolated power systems, particularly those based with lots of renewable energy? So yeah, definitely there are some barriers. So you are not able to implement a technology that will reduce the reliability of your system. So you you still need to make sure that when you introduce some technology, you don't create a over-complicated control hierarchy. So what it means is that, for example, if I introduce a battery, let's say lithium-ion battery, and start using it to the highest extent of this battery, then I can, I can have a situation when, let's say, my battery runs out of energy and my diesel engines are not ready to respond, and I can basically create a blackout on an isolated power system. So you still need to make sure that you are staying within this availability standards. But what I meant about that you are like an artist in this system, that you can create scenarios that would not be realistical at this moment in the big real power system. You can make, uh, you can think of these scenarios and actually model all of these case studies and see how they look like. But you can even go further and implement it in these power systems. So, for example, our team implemented uh, this technology called Lolo Diesel on the Keen Island, and it was piloted and it was curated in there. It was shown that it's quite successful to use it in there. But before that, King Island actually is a really good example. They piloted lithium-ion battery, which was used to extend the periods of time when you don't use diesel engines. They piloted uh, different types of battery chemistries. Uh, they also introduced a so-called dumb load, uh, which sounds very interesting, but it's actually a really nice technology that allows you some simplicity of uh, running those grids and so on. That's really interesting, Getty. I wondered, what type of methods do you use when you're coming up with how you're going to change the system and what's your goal? So I'm, I'm assuming that your goal is to make this individual operating on its own power system on King Island to make it most efficient at delivering energy when you want it, because that's generally what power systems try to do. But what kind of ways do you go from coming up with an idea or a concept in your brain to like actually having a power system that you're testing in King Island and what types of measures do you obtain to test whether it's any good? Uh, that's a good question. So in, in our research, we considered different objectives. At the beginning, we just set up, okay, w what would be the most important objective for any community? Regardless how much we are talking about the renewable energy and how clean it is and how good it is, Unfortunately, the biggest objective objective is always always money. So you have to make sure that you consider that those ideas that you have 
will minimize the cost of uh, running those system and eventually will minimize the uh, electricity bills for people who live in those communities. Uh, diesel uh, fuel is really expensive and it's getting more and more expensive every day. And in those isolated communities like islands, for example, it's it's even a bigger challenge because you have to bring this this flow with uh, like ships and uh, barges, and uh, those costs are rising as well because cost of transportation also depends on the fuel. And so, if we can think of something that will allow us to reduce those costs, that's uh, the biggest benefit that will can get but we can always <coughs> we, we, we should always think about how sustainable and clean it is to uh, generate our energy in those communities because those people also want to breathe fresh air they don't really want to hear those loud uh, diesel engines uh, near uh, their houses so implementing technologies like solar e-cells and um, wind turbines it's like even marine uh, uh, technologies like wave energy and so on those are the types of sources that are most appealing to those communities so there's always economical aspect uh, social aspect and uh, ecological aspect so you have to even though i'm an engineer i have to think of all three aspects at the same time and try to come up with some kind of technology that will satisfy the needs of all three parameters so when you I do some mixed methods research looking at social implications of introducing something new into a system, do you go about collecting that information in consultation with communities about, hey, we're going to try and do a new power system? How do you feel about wind turbines? I know that they're kind of controversial. Or what do you think about us putting some stuff in the water so that you get some clean energy? It's going to save you some money, but, you know, and it might be less noisy. How, how is that information actually captured in a project like yours? Sometimes on some projects, we actually uh, cooperate with non-engineers. And that's where it's really exciting because our brains are wired differently. <laughs> and it's always like, it's, it's always so nice to uh, hear opinions and thoughts of non-engineers because you sit in front of a computer the whole day and you're like, yeah, I can I can solve this problem in one hour and you think of some ideas and you build a model and it works really nice and then you go to uh, actual people, human beings and you <laughs> pitch this idea and they're like, what are you talking about? It makes no sense. And you're like, but, but numbers. But uh, my, my <laughs> mathematical model is beautiful. Exactly. What do you mean? It doesn't exactly. make sense. <laughs> like I, you can see 10% improvements in cost, 50% improvements in renewable energy penetration. But uh, people would say you, but uh, there is a wind turbine in my backyard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I don't really want that. So yeah, you do need to consider all of this. And the way we do uh, these kind of things is we would like always do some literature review. Th- those like uh, the first things that we were we would go to some some surveys sometimes helps as well. Calling those communities, asking like what 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 do you guys want? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, great. Stick with us, listeners, and we'll be talking more to our expert guest Eugeni Semshikov <laughs> from the School of Engineering at the University of Tasmania, and we'll be wrapping up the show 
fingering out what all of this means for you, our listeners and our communities at a whole. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about isolated power systems. My name is Sarah Lydon, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Yevgeny Sentrikov. So in the previous segments, we've talked a lot, Yevgeny, about your PhD project and about isolated power systems and things like optimising for factors like reliability for customers and cost and also trying to maximize the amount of renewables that we have. So this has been talked about in very isolated power systems that are usually kind of very remote communities. But what connections are there between this work that you're doing in isolated power systems and more urban grid infrastructures that our listeners may be more familiar with? Yeah, great question. Um, So a lot of the work we do, we start seeing some of the patterns so, for example, if you introduce a lot of the uh, wind and solar technologies, those technologies are usually based on inverters. And inverters is something that uh, decouples your electrical grid from the mechanical systems. So you don't have uh, this like inertia, that I- which is uh, historically was available because of the way how we operated our system. Inertia is really important in the grids and it's... Uh, allows you to run your system smoothly but with introducing all of these new technologies you kind of face the face the challenge that the more and more of these inverter based uh, resources you have you are not able to operate your system the way you used to do it in the past and in our small i i i'd say laboratory kind of environments of our solid power system we can reach the case where we have around 90% 90% of uh, power coming from these inverter-based technologies. And when we do that, we can uh, try different uh, scenarios and see how your system would react if, let's say, you lose half of your generation. Is your system capable to keep operating or will it create a case where you no longer capable of providing electricity to all of your consumers. Those kind of scenarios we can easily um, analyze in the area of isolated power system, but we can't really uh, understand what will happen in our big real power system if we have, let's say, 80% of inverters and we have a huge disturbance in our system. The finding that we see right now in our examples, in our research, we can scale up And those uh, scaled up um, outputs will tell us what we should expect in the next 10 years when it will actually happen in those uh, real power systems. So it's a way of like forecasting what will happen in the future. And it's not just uh, thinking of this in your head, but actually seeing how it uh, happens in real uh, scenarios. So, you get it. Does that mean that it's kind of easier to innovate in an isolated power system because it's a smaller scale and you can check out how does that perform? What does it mean before we say we're going to do this across all of Tasmania? So, have I got that right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Cool. And then, so I've got a little bit of a curveball question, I reckon, that's been on my mind. Like, if we democratize electricity production and everybody starts getting their own home version of a mini isolated power system with a battery vehicle and 
and everything, which we're kind of musing with with this special series. How does that play into modeling a system on scale for the cost to users where you're maybe not a completely on your own isolated power system, but you're sometimes generating your own power, sometimes tapping into a bigger system? How complex is that to try and consider the ways we do that feasibly and how do we keep those costs for consumers in our mind? Yeah, that's a, it's, it's a great topic. Uh, I do like to hear these sort of questions because in my in my mind, we are moving towards this anyway. So in the future, we'll have, and that's just a speculation, but I do want to believe in that. In the future, we'll have a lot of this isolated power system within the real big power system. And those isolated power systems are called microgrids. And the way how the microgrid operates is exactly the same way how isolated power system operates, with the only one difference that it can connect to a bigger uh, network. There is a need. For example, if you have way too much uh, energy in your microgrid, you can sell this energy. And if you have a deficit of energy, you can buy something from the grid. And then you start trading with all these small islands and you have like a peer-to-peer trading. And that's exciting. That's that's the future I want to see simply because it's kind of related to what I know for the, the best. But um, yeah, and in those kind of scenarios, it's, it's really good to have this kind of uh, grids because if you have a huge disturbance somewhere in, let's say, New South Wales, Right now, it can propagate through all network and cause all sorts of problems and can even lead to a blackout of the whole country if uh, we do something really wrong. But with all of these microgrids set up properly, uh, what it means is that you have some, some kind of disaster in one part of the system and the whole system just becomes extremely islanded but within these islands people still have electricity they still can watch uh, Netflix in the evening mm-hmm. and they, like, they don't really <laughs> care what's going on uh, somewhere far far from their houses. Yeah it's a really interesting question I think for the next few years as this kind of democratizes and becomes an every household consideration. I'd like to thank our expert guest, Dr. Eugeny Semshikov, who recently had his PhD all ticked off. You are now Dr. Eugeny Semshikov, woohoo, from the University of Tasmania School of Engineering. We really like to celebrate the feat that is getting a doctorate, so congratulations. Really great to see that you came to Tasmania to do that and that you're so passionate about your area. I'd also like to thank my expert guest on engineering, Dr. Sarah Lydon, who always brings us wonderful engineering content that I find so interesting and I'll admit I'm usually pretty surprised that I find it as interesting so thank you Sarah really really excellent from you until next time that's it from me folks goodbye this program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation find out more at cbf.org.au you've been listening to That's What I Call Science brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network you can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. 
Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.